The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 100, titled Navigating a Negative Carry World. Can you believe it? 100 episodes. When I first launched the podcast in May 2014, end of May, I didn't know if anyone would listen. That first month, that June 2014, had about 1,200 downloads. Now, we are over 2 million downloads of the show, and it's a global audience. When you look at the top 10 countries, they are U.S., Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, Mexico, Germany, Sweden, Japan, Norway, and New Zealand. And the top 10 cities are New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, Toronto, Houston, Seattle, Mexico City, Washington, D.C., and London. New listener growth is about 5% a month. And why is that? It's because you tell people about the show, and for that, I am very, very grateful. With that, let's get on with this week's episode. In early March 2015, the actor Harrison Ford decided to take his vintage World War II open cockpit single-engine plane on a 20-minute flight over Southern California. After a careful pre-flight check, Ford took off from the Santa Monica Airport. When he reached 1,100 feet, the engine died. All he could hear was the wind. Ford radioed the control tower at the Santa Monica airport to request an emergency landing, and it quickly became apparent that he would not make it back to the airport. Instead, Ford maneuvered the plane toward the Penmar Golf Course in Venice, California. He clipped a tree and then crash-landed the plane. Ford woke up five days later at the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. His quote, and I read this, I was getting my hair cut, And I picked up Men's Journal, and there was this article about this crash. And here was, they quoted Harrison Ford. Here's his quote. My first question was, did I kill anyone on the ground? He couldn't remember the crash. I knew I wasn't going to make the runway, so I was going to the golf course. What a regret more than anything, I don't remember the maneuvering. What decisions I made after I decided I was going to the golf course. When the engine quit, my training had prepared me to deal with it in a way, said Ford. I really didn't get scared. I just got busy. I knew what I was going to do, and I knew how to do it. The mantra of aviators carry around in our heads is fly the airplane. First thing, fly the airplane. Even if it doesn't have an engine, fly. Don't give up the ship, matey. And even though I don't remember the details of it, I guess I was able to do that because the way I landed, the wings were level, I didn't stall it, I'm here. In the crash, Ford suffered a broken pelvis and ankle along with a head laceration. It seems like he's fully recovered. When Ford faced this perilous situation with an unknown but potentially fatal outcome, he went back to the basics. He just flew 
the airplane. As investors trying to navigate our financial lives, we also face an unpredictable and at times perilous future. The investment and economic landscape is as unpredictable today as any time in history. Why? Because the level of complexity and interconnectedness among markets, economies, investment instruments, and participants has never been higher. More and more trading is done automatically by computer algorithms. At the same time, central banks around the globe have never been more active in trying to influence economic and market outcomes. Many of the interventions, such as quantitative easing and negative interest rates, which we're going to talk about today, have never been tried previously. There has also never been more focus by market participants on trying to deduce what central banks will do and what the results will be. The prevailing narrative driving markets is that market outcomes are the result of central bank policy, either for good or bad. That's the central belief in the market, that somehow the central banks can control the outcome or at least influence the outcome is what is happening with the economy and with markets. And my concern is, what happens when that narrative changes? And investors stop believing in the effectiveness of central banks and in their ability to influence market outcomes. I certainly don't believe it. And I don't believe that they have as much influence as the market believes. So that's a concern I have. And we'll talk a little bit today about what central banks do and why I just don't think that they have as much control as many market participants and investors believe. But first, let me share an experience. When I, I, in episode 97, I talked about the great financial crisis and went through, I, I shared a lot of my writing during that time. And I continued to manage money throughout 2009, 2010. And by 2011, in the, in the early fall 2011, I announced to my partners that I was leaving my firm. And we negotiated an exit, and I was going to leave in April 2012. Wasn't sure what I was going to do. And in February 2012, I took a solo trip to the Yucatan in Mexico. And I spent a week taking photos, traveling around, visiting a lot of the Mayan ruins. I'd been there three or four times before, visiting villages, just just taking pictures. And then I spent a week on the beach in Tulum. And I rented a little cottage right there on the beach. And my focus was to write and to think. And the main thing I thought about was what I called the terrible question and trying to figure out what the answer was. And that question is, how would I invest and live if the world had become so complex that no one had a clue what was going to happen next? Because up until that time, and as I managed the money, I always believed somebody out there was smart enough to know what was going to happen. And then as I navigated through the financial crisis, I mean, investors were paying me to figure out what was going to happen. But now that it wasn't managing money or shortly wouldn't be managing money, I I could ask that question honestly. Well, what if nobody actually did know? And what would I do and how would I invest? And one of the things I concluded was the future unfolds in a series of endless surprises, both good and bad. 
And that is followed by human reaction and overreaction to those surprises. Those were the two things that don't change. Endless surprise and human reaction and overreaction to those surprises. That is two layers of unpredictability. The surprise followed by the reaction. It is unpredictability squared. But it gets even more unpredictable due to the cascade effect. The initial surprise and the human reaction to it can set off additional surprises and reactions. I'd call it a domino effect, but dominoes tend to fall one at a time. At least there's some predictability to that. You have a sense of which domino will fall next. Not so in the real world. There are just too many dominoes, and they're all interconnected, and they're all falling, even getting back up at the same time. The answer to that terrible question is what I will answer today, and it's what I've been teaching, showing, and doing on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, because that's that's how I manage money. I manage money understanding I can't predict the future. George Soros, I recently read a quote from the renowned investor, billionaire George Soros, and he said, I don't expect, I observe. And he's not predicting, he's not expecting, he's observing and then reacting to it. I call that investing on the leading edge of the present, and that's what we can do. We can prepare for surprise, we can take advantage of surprise, we can react to surprise, and we can particularly react to how other investors are reacting to surprise, their level of fear and greed, the trends that they start, the momentum aspect, that call that on the hub, market internals. But let's get back to this idea, and we're gonna, we'll drill down a little bit more on that, what specifically we can do to answer that question. But let's look at this idea of central bank infallibility, which I don't believe exists. Recently, Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, wrote a blog post. He wrote for Brookings Institute. It was part one. It was just published a few days ago. Part one, negative interest rates. I want to thank Simon, a member of the Hub, that shared this with me. I hadn't seen it. And he talked about negative interest rates, what we're going to talk about here. But here's his quote. First off, he was the idea was to share other tools that central bankers still have to help stimulate the economy and to ease. And in one of these tools is negative interest rates. But he also said there are signs that monetary policy in the United States in other industrial countries is reaching its limits. What's monetary policy? That's, that's what central banks do. They do monetary policy. They, they try to target interest rates in, in such a way that it stimulates behavior in terms of, of corporations, households, businesses, and investors. And he's saying we're reaching its limits in terms of what monetary policy can do. And so he's saying it makes it even more important that the collective response to a slowdown, an economic slowdown, involves other policies, particularly fiscal policy, which we're not going to talk about today, but fiscal policies, actions by governments to increase spending in terms of just spending more to create demand that hopefully that will jumpstart the economy. But what about this negative interest rates? What is that exactly? And, and how negative are rates globally? The world is comprised of savers and borrowers. Savers want to earn 
a positive rate of return on their savings. If you're in a positive rate of return, if you get paid to hold an asset, that's called positive carry. When you pay someone for the privilege of holding an asset, that's negative carry. Negative interest rates are negative carry. Or any investment that you own where you're losing purchasing power over time, that's negative carry. And that is, there are many investments that have negative carry. So we have savers and borrowers. Savers want to earn a positive return. Borrowers want to access to that savings to invest in projects or to buy things. And examples are most institutional borrowers seek funds to invest in capital projects such as building a new factory that they believe will earn a rate of return that exceeds their borrowing cost. And retail borrowers want to accelerate their future spending into the present to buy a house or car. In theory, there is a rate of interest where the amount of funds savers want to save equals the amount of funds borrowers want to borrow. And this rate of interest, and we've talked about this in earlier episodes, is called the equilibrium real rate of interest. And by real rate, it's the rate after backing out nominal or inflation. And so you you get the nominal interest rate, you back out the expected rate of inflation, you get, get that gets the real rate of interest. That's sort of a back of the envelope calculation. So the theory suggests an economy that is at its equilibrium, real rate of interest will not only have ample profitable capital investment projects for businesses to earn a rate of return above their borrowing cost, earn a positive carry, but there will be sufficient opportunities to ensure that everyone who wants a job can get a job. That's full employment. Now, in practice, there's no, no one can observe this equilibrium rate of interest. And while the, the unemployment rate is observable, but what central banks are trying to do is they're trying to set the short-term interest rates and influence long-term interest rates so they're at this equilibrium rate, real rate of interest so that companies are borrowing, households are borrowing, and investors are saving. There's a meeting of the minds. There's a clearing rate, and it's at a level that the economy is just moving right along, and everybody that wants a job can get a job. Now, central banks around the world are all looking at their domestic economies and trying to figure out, well, what is that appropriate real rate of interest? Sometimes they think it's too, it, right now it, it's too high and they want to lower the real rate of interest. And so they're easing and they're, they're performing monetary policy primarily by lowering their policy rate. But what happens when you get your policy rate, your short-term rate is zero and the economy is still not recovering sufficiently? Then some central banks are trying and they're setting negative interest rates. And Ben Bernanke described what negative interest rates are. He says, in practice, this means that instead of receiving interest on the reserves, they hold with the central banks and they being banks hold with the central banks. Banks are charged a fee on reserves above a threshold. The expectation is that to avoid the fee, banks will shift to other short-term assets, which drives down the yields on those assets as well, possibly to negative levels. Ultimately, the efforts of banks and other investors to avoid negative returns on the shortest-term assets should lead to a declines in 
a broad range of longer-term interest rates, such as mortgage rates and the yields on corporate bonds. So that's the theory. You, you tell banks, central bank says, okay, above this level of reserves that you have on account at the central bank, you're going to start paying us a fee to hold that. And hopefully that will encourage them to invest elsewhere and drive down interest rates. Right now, there are three central banks who have set their policy rate negative. One is Sweden, negative 0.5%. Switzerland, negative 0.25%. And Japan recently changed theirs to negative 0.1%. The European Central Bank has said they're going to employ negative interest rates, and, and they do in, in to some degree, but their, their actual policy rate right now, their official policy rate, is zero. So there are, there are three countries whose actual nominal short-term policy rate is negative. But 45% of the countries have negative real rates in, in such that their policy rate is set at such a level, once you back out inflation, the, the short-term rate is, is negative. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. 34 central banks is what I was looking at that, that I kind of tracked. They can get data on. 
These are the major central banks around the world. Two-thirds are easing their monetary policy, which suggests the world still has not reached a level where real rates are at a level to ensure a continual and robust economic recovery that ensures full employment. Right now, the global central bank policy rate, so global, so we, if we just do a weighted average based on gross domestic product, so whoever has the largest economy gets the biggest weight, as of, two, as of the end of February 2016, that GDP-weighted global central bank interest rate, this is from data by Ned Davis Research, is 1.99%. To provide some perspective, as we were heading into 2007, 2007, right before the great financial crisis, the global GDP-weighted global central bank interest rate was 5%. It's been around 2% since 2009. They dropped it to 2%. It got as high as 2.8% in 2011. Many central banks started raising rates. Then they ended up dropping rates. We're back down to around 2%. What does that suggest? Well, one, rates could go even more negative across the globe if more central banks initiate policies to to essentially negative interest rate policies to try to get the real rate even lower. But right now we're at 2%. That's where we have been primarily since 2009. We've not gotten lower than that. But one of my questions is maybe it's been seven years. And we're still at such a low rate. That 2% is negative, means negative rates after backing out inflation are neg- uh, or essentially are negative. We are in a negative carry world, which suggests there's just not enough demand around the world to borrow or there's too much savings. And maybe that's because we just have too much stuff. Maybe the world is satiated. And the things that we want just don't require much capital. Maybe we've gotten so efficient, so productive, everybody is just satisfied. (laughs) This could go on. Who knows? And it gets back to the world is unpredictable. But one potential scenario is this could go on indefinitely, a very low interest, negative carry world. What do we do about it? Harrison Ford faced his life-threatening situation by focusing on what he could control. He adjusted the flaps and maneuvered the control to keep the wings of his airplane level, even though the engine wasn't working as he glided toward the golf course. What can we control in our own financial lives as we navigate through a radically unpredictable negative carry world? What can we control? First, we can save more and spend less. In a world of low to negative interest rates, the power of compounding is subdued. Asset class returns are lower. If you if you the shortest short-term asset class, you, you actually have to pay in terms of loss of purchasing power to own them. That means there's more demand for the asset classes that have a positive carry. And as there's more demand, that means the expected return goes down. And if asset class returns are lower, it means investors, as investors, we have to save a higher percentage of our income than ever before. And we can save more by generating more income. We can have lifestyle businesses. We can, one of the 
the the points that a a listener sent me because I, I sort of emphasize lifestyle businesses, but there are there are individuals that have lifestyle employment that they have jobs that are that they're rewarded quite well. They enjoy their work. They're highly compensated. They have freedom to pursue the activities that they enjoy, pursue their hobbies. And so I don't want to to badmouth employment, but ultimately we should find ways, we need to find ways to increase our income because as we increase our income, that is one way that we can save more. But we also have to learn to, to spend less which is getting easier and easier if we're in a world that's satiated where where we can get the niceties of life for less money, then we don't need as much. And one of the creative challenges of our time is to figure out how to spend less while maintaining satisfying, rewarding, and productive lives. In other words, how do we live richly but on less money? So that's the first thing we do. We can save more. We can spend less. Second, In a world that is radically unpredictable, we can make sure our portfolios are more diversified than ever with multiple, multiple return drivers, different things that drive the ultimate return of different asset classes. That means just not public investments like stocks and bonds, but private investments like our own lifestyle business, like real estate. We can invest in our education. We can acquire new skills. We can invest in gold. We can, I had a friend tell me the other day about this geothermal greenhouse where you essentially, it brings up the heat from the earth and it keeps it at a steady 70 degrees as we move out to our farm next month. It's something I'm going to look at because gardening, there could be a return of investment just in gardening. We should invest both globally and locally, including acquiring new skills. And we should focus more on asset classes and less on trying to beat the market by investing in individual stocks. We also have to be willing, if we would like, this is what I do, this is what we focus on in the hub, to adjust our asset allocation based on market conditions. Being willing to just rent assets. Instead of owning them for the long term, sometimes you just rent them because you get a positive carry for a certain period of time, at which point you're no longer compensated well for holding those assets. Sometimes you hold a negative carry asset like cash. I typically have a 10% or more of my portfolio in cash, and I'm paying to hold that. But I am portfolio-focused. I'm focused on the entire portfolio and not just on one specific aspect of it. And if I can hold cash as I want to balance risk, balance risk in some of my riskier investments, as well as await opportunities, I'm fine doing that. A final strategy to deal with this radical unpredictability and negative carry world is to do what I recently read Ben Hunt, Chief Risk Officer at the Investment Service Salient Partners. He writes a newsletter that I've talked about in an earlier episode called Epsilon Theory. His most recent one was very, very thought-provoking. It was called Hobson's Choice. And if you're a member of my Insider's Guide, we'll have emailed that to you already. And you would have also gotten a summary article of this particular episode. You can sign up for my free Insider's Guide by going to moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a U.S.-based 
listener, you can text the word insider to the number 44222. But in this particular Epsilon Theory, Hobson Choice, he talks about a strategy called minimize our maximum regret, the min-max theory or the min-max exercise. And here's what, he, here's what he wrote. One exercise I find useful is to think of different future scenarios for the world, not because I'm trying to predict which one will happen, but precisely because I can't. And then consider how my current exposures and strategies are likely to fare in those futures. And by exposures and strategies, we can think in terms of our investment portfolio, which is what he is thinking about, or we can think about our financial lives or our overall lives in general. So he's plotting out different future scenarios. He goes on to say, my goal isn't to figure out the scenario where I think I'll do the best, because then I'll start hoping for it. And consciously or unconsciously, we'll start to assign a higher probability of it occurring. But to figure out out the scenario, I'll do the worst. That's what he's trying to do. So he's got all these scenarios to figure out which scenario potentially is the worst case scenario. And then he goes and he tries to protect himself against that and potentially, if he can, to profit from it. We do this in our lives all the time. We protect against the worst by purchasing home insurance, auto, health, and life insurance. What other things can we do to minimize our maximum regret? Well, we can keep our debt balances low, pay off our debt. We can have a greater margin of safety, both in terms of our investing as well as in terms of emergency savings. We can focus on the extreme and not the average outcome, and we can keep pockets of independence, money and assets that are not tied to the financial markets. These are all themes I've talked about in the first 100 episodes. I believe a negative carry world is going to be here a long time. I believe that there's just too much stuff in the world and not enough demand, too much savings. And as a result, on the short end of the yield curve, investors are going to pay at least after adjusting for inflation to hold those assets. And that will flow through to the longer end of the curve to other asset classes so that investment returns are going to be low. My estimation for global stocks over the next 10 years is only about 6%. And those assumptions, as well as assumptions, 10-year assumptions for other asset classes, are on the money for the rest of us, Hub. What do we do about it? Well, we have to fly our financial airplane. We can't ditch it. We have to be like Harrison Ford. We have to focus on what we can control. We can control our asset class allocation. We can have many more asset classes, both public and private, so that we have multiple drivers of returns. We don't have to predict which is going to do the best in any given year. We have to save more. We're going to have to save more and spend less, and we're going to have to minimize our maximum regret by we can plot out what are the worst-case scenarios and potentially and to hedge them, to protect against them in any way we can. That's how we fly the airplane. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net, as I just described. And if you would like more information on the Money for the Rest of Us hub, there we have over 300 members that are using it, using the education platform to help them navigate a negative carry 
unpredictable world, not by trying to predict the future, but by trying to build out portfolios that can overcome over multiple scenarios and also to get the motivation from an investment mentor to to save more and to spend less. And you can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, just general education on money, investing in the economy. Thanks for listening over the past 100 episodes. I plan on doing many, many more. Have a great week.